Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's episode, managing editor Elizabeth Thompson sits down with soon-to-be former CEO of the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada, Tina Quigley, to talk about her departure and to look back at her time at the RTC, including things it could have done better. In a later segment, reporter Megan Messerly joins Elizabeth in the studio to chat about a story she wrote on children in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems being sent out of state to receive various kinds of treatment. And make sure to listen past the credits this week, as we have a new segment we wanted to start putting at the end of the show. But before all of that, here are a few headlines I also read for broadcast over with our partners at KUNR Reno Public Radio. In a story reported by Shannon Miller, Nevada's Democratic Attorney General Aaron Ford has announced he will join attorneys general across the country calling for an investigation of Google's online advertising practices. Ford said his primary reason for participating in the probe, led by Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and taken on by 48 states as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, is to identify and act on the tech giant's practices that violate state antitrust laws. In a statement, Ford said that one of his priorities as Attorney General is protecting Nevada's consumers and the investigation into Google's business practices will determine whether the company is negatively affecting individuals and businesses. In the past, Google has been fined for abusing its dominant position in the market and manipulating search results. Ford and the Attorneys General will conduct their own investigation of Google as the Department of Justice conducts a separate one. From Michelle Rendell's, Republican lawmakers in northern Nevada were considered both the most and least conservative in the state. The American Conservative Union Foundation released a scorecard of the legislature's 2019 session, crowning Republican Senator Ira Hansen of Sparks and Assemblyman John Ellison of Elko as the most likely to vote with the group's ideology. Conversely, the lowest-ranking Republicans were Senator Ben Kiefer and Assemblyman Jill Tolles, both from Reno. The report card graded lawmakers on whether their votes on 35 different bills aligned with the ACU's position. Those measures included opposition to gun background checks, opposition to unionization for state employees, and opposition to an increase in the minimum wage. As for Democrats, most scored in the single digits. However, Sparks Assemblyman Skip Daly was named the most conservative assembly member from his party. From Mark Hernandez, federal wildlife officials say Clark County's Mojave poppy bee could be the second bee in the continental United States on the endangered species list. The Fish and Wildlife Service recently announced that it found substantial scientific or commercial information that the bee might warrant an endangered species listing because of the threats from grazing, recreation, gypsum mining, and the competition from non-native honeybees. The so-called 90-day finding kicks off a process of gathering information to determine whether the Mojave poppy bee will be protected under the Endangered Species Act. The tiny, quarter-inch-long bee, which is yellow and black, is a specialist bee solely in charge of pollinating the Las Vegas bear poppy and dwarf bear poppy, which both produce pollen but not nectar. Under the Endangered Species Act, the listed species would have federal protection to ensure its survival, which can result in designating a critical habitat. Within the critical habitat, developers and mining companies could lose access to the affected areas unless they could ensure the species would coexist naturally with their presence. Okay, I am here with Tina Quigley, who has 
some news, sort of. She has some (laughs) news that she can tell us now and more news to come uh, later. So, Tina, tell the listeners uh, your job title now and what is the news. All right. So, title is uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada. That's a lot of words. So, basically, I'm, I'm with the RTC. And I've been with the RTC for over 14 years. And before that, I was with the airport for 15 years. Um, and I'm retiring. <laughs> really? That's the news you're retiring? I am retiring. From the RTC? From the RTC. From working all together? Are you yeah. moving to a tropical island? I'm or? not. I know. And Elizabeth, you know me way too well to know to know, you know a couple of things. One is that I am completely committed to Southern Nevada. I, 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 am, I am married to it, and I, I draw my passion from knowing that I can do good things uh, here in the world of transportation. And you know me well enough to know that I, I can't go to a tropical island and enjoy drinks. I can drink, and I can enjoy tropical islands, but not for a long For time. short periods. For short periods of time. <laughs> so no, I will confidentially, although I suppose it's not that confidential now that I'm sharing it with you on this podcast. Um, you have something up your sleeve. I do. Okay. I, I, I'm in negotiations with a with a project that I I think is is real and I think is going to be very good for Southern Nevada. And, okay. And, uh, I, I hope to be a part of it. That sounds exciting. It, what more can you say about it, if anything? It's tra- it's still in the transportation realm. Okay. Um, can I pressure you to break <laughs> the news here on the Indie Matters podcast <laughs> can, or on the website back. when it happens? How about this? Chugga, 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 choo-choo. Oh. That's all. That's all you get. Okay. Okay. Well, that could be any number that of projects. So many things. Because trains and rail has been discussed yes. related to the airport, related to the strip, mm-hmm. related to between here and California. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least three things that we could be talking about. Yeah. So, and all those things would be great for Southern Nevada, right? I think there's mixed opinions on that, okay. but um, <laughs> let's circle back we'll to that. Come back. If we'll come we back have in, time. in a few weeks. Yeah. We'll, well, and I'll okay. So time. 14 years at the RTC. Sure. Um, let's do a look back. So let's talk about the good stuff first. What What are the things that mm-hmm. you accomplished in your time there that okay. you are the happiest or most proud of? Sure. Well, and we'll, we'll go back a little bit. It, it feels like history, but actually it was very significant. And that was uh, worked with, with our community of advocates to get um, motor vehicle fuel tax tied to inflation. Yeah, motor vehicle fuel tax had been flat for over 20 years, and our electeds recognized that we were going to be having a problem. Our construction industry, our housing industry, um, our economic development agencies recognized this was going to be a problem for us. So we worked with them to educate. They did the advocating. We did the educating. But uh, we did pass question five in 2016 to tie, again, motor vehicle fuel tax to inflation. And in doing so, we allowed ourselves to bond for up to $3 billion worth of of work that we needed. We needed it for maintenance. We needed it for capacity expansion. We needed it for congestion relief. We needed it for traffic signalization enhancements and improvements, um, for advancing technology in the world of transit and transportation. And as a result, I am happy to tell you that, that we are at this point being recognized at a national level for the projects and the advancements that we are making in the world of transit and technology and transportation. And we never could have done that without the public allowing us to tie fuel tax to inflation. So very proud of that. So now you said we're getting national 
recognition for tell me for what? what, um, what are, mo- most particular is uh, the advancements in in using uh, startup technologies for uh, increasing capacity, managing our roads more efficiently. And one that I'm particularly proud of, and I, I think I've shared with you, is uh, our partnership with a small Israeli startup called Waycare. They came to us so a few years ago uh, and said, hey, we think we have the ability to predict where the next accident or incident is going to occur along I-15, partnered with them. they We said, hey, well, great, let's talk. We'll put in $30,000 into the effort. You guys take on all the risk. You take on the effort to develop this. And it took a while, but but they did it. They, they flew in a team of technologists from Israel who sat in our traffic management center. And um, it, we got to the point where we can now predict, we, we call them hotspots. And when they're, the, so they used a, an aggregate of data, they the historical data, the seasonal data that we just they even they, they scrape the internet and they even consider what conventions in town because we have different driver behaviors based on different conventions. And now, yeah, when we see a hot spot, we'll do a couple things. And that was we'll use the dynamic message signs to remind people to slow to the speed limit. And then we'll also we partner with NHP and they'll station a uh, patrol car out. And those two things alone will re- slows people down. Ninety percent of all drivers will slow down for that. Absolutely. And so, in seeing, we've already seen this a seventeen, eighteen percent reduction in the number of accidents and fatalities. So that that's a really? huge savings, right? Within these corridors, what we're testing over what time period? When did this? Uh, we've done? We've been doing this for almost a year now. Wow. And then the other thing is that. Um, we're able to respond to accidents and incidents on average 12 minutes faster than we were before. And, you know, a lot of times you have a first the, – the faster you can clear it up, the less likely you're going to have a secondary accident or a tertiary, There's, which a lot of times happens, you know. Um, and I always say that, you know, every time – every minute that you've, you've blocked off a lane of traffic, you've stolen from the taxpayers because that's capacity that they've already paid for. Mm-hmm. So your, our obligation is to clear that up as safely and – quickly as possible and give them back the infrastructure that they've paid for. All of our listeners are cheering loudly right now. (laughs) Well, see, and we're able to do that because we, well, and the other reason that we're able to do that, frankly, Elizabeth, is because we, the RTC has a board that is forward thinking and wants to, they're not afraid to do some of these small tests and deployments. Now there'll be failures associated with some of our tests and deployments as well. But as long as we're keeping them small scale and really just doing them as pilot programs um, and they support us and, and our, the culture of Southern Nevada supports this, this, the, this type of philosophy, um, we, are, we are leading at a national level. We are. I'm a big fan in general when it comes to testing any new system or policy of running pilot programs. One of my biggest complaints on a county level and a state level, and this is not just unique to Nevada, um, but I think sometimes that people get excited about new ideas, and so everyone gets very gung-ho, and then we put things into place that cost mm-hmm. millions and millions of dollars, and then things don't go quite as we planned. <laughs> surprise, yeah. surprise. Yeah. And sometimes we entirely ditch new systems and, and things that we tried. That we And it's so easy then to say, well, wow, maybe we should have ran a smaller pilot program. So I'm encouraged to hear that at least one agency is uh, attempting to, uh, to kind of do that. Okay, another topic that I feel is incumbent upon me to bring up, and John L. Smith, Uh, One of our columnists just wrote about this on Sunday, and we got quite the set of reactions from all over the um, map in a way, but in another way, they almost all agreed. And I'm talking about the new 24-7 HOV lanes. Mm. 
So I'm gathering that nearly no one respects them the way they should all the time and that that's happening because people just think it's a bad idea. So what do you have to say well, to that? What I have to say, first of all, is I feel your pain. And I've certainly shared with NDOT my opinions on that as well. But that is a, that is a Nevada Department of Transportation project. And I understand um, their logic behind it, what they're, what they're, they're trying to change human behavior and encourage people to, to share rides or to use high occupancy Is vehicles. that the real reason, do you think? I mean, that's what the stated reason is. And so you're... I know you don't speak for Ed Dot, but you've lived in this community a long time as, as I have. And I, so I sort of, I well, guess the reason I question it, so let, I'll do the work for you on this yeah, question. Go ahead. I'm a little skeptical myself. I just wonder, you know, do they really, so if you state a reason for doing something, presumably you presumably you believe that the action you're about to take will actually result in the result you're trying to achieve. But I think from what I've seen, and I I truly hate to be this cynical, but I've lived here for 20 years. I've seen all kinds of efforts to get more people to carpool. And this is a town in which it's hard to do that for people because we're so spread out, because of the different suburban areas, because people are mixing, dropping the kids with going to work, with running an errand. And that doesn't always, you know, jive with trying to carpool. I just I think Vegas is a really diverse and busy city and it can make it a little difficult for yeah. people to to manage doing this. So I think I question the policy because I wonder whether it's actually going to encourage anyone to to carpool. So, you know, that certainly I I hear what you're saying, and I, I felt it. I've asked, you know, repeatedly. So remind me, how much capacity did we gain through this project? And the answer is zero. We didn't gain any additional general purpose lanes for through Project Neon. But that said, they are benchmarking to see where we were before Project Neon in terms of um, congestion. And uh, and then we'll see, you know, they'll be continuing to monitor them. They'll also monitor the carpool lanes to see how many vehicles that they're having, that they have encouraged to, to use to Okay. Well, thank you for indulging me because it was not really your job to answer any of those questions. <laughs> no, I was curious as a resident of the community, mainly what you sure. really thought. Okay. Right now you know. <laughs> now let's talk about the not so good stuff. So what what do you wish you could have gotten done at the mm. RTC in your time here sure. that you couldn't? Okay. Uh, can you name one big thing or a couple things? I'll tell you, I think in retrospect, and you know, it's always retrospect, but I'm, I'm going to be very authentic with you. I think I should have seen, I should have predicted the impact of the Uber and Lyfts more significantly than than I did. When it first that happened so fast, though, I mean, I'm not sure anyone could yeah. foresee how, just how quickly and to what extent. extent. It would grow. I yeah. mean, it's been surprising to me. Obviously, I'm not a transportation expert, but I do pay attention to the markets and economics and what's going on. And I, I was, I wasn't surprised it did well. I was pretty surprised at how quickly the rideshare companies started displacing all kinds of transportation, pu public and and taxi cabs alike. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. Thank you for that because I, I feel the same way. But I'm I'm in the industry. I really should have. I knew that there was a trend and we were following it. I just, I, I was expecting it to plateau. And I thought once it plateaued, then we would know what our, we would start to focus on strategy. I think I would have brought it to my board's attention much earlier. And I would have strategized with staff. I would have said, 
we need to start having policy conversations with whatever agency it is that's responsible for the policies related to managing that traffic on the strip. It's our ridership is down significantly to the point that we, you know, where we used to make a profit on that route, we are not. And unfortunately, that profit was used to subsidize the rest of the transit system, the sure. residential transit systems. So that profit's gone. Uh, we're starting to dip into reserves, which is which is scary. Uh, but also, so it's but then it's also compounded by the additional congestion that has occurred. So it's a double whammy. And I love Uber and Lyft. I mean, personally, I use them. How awesome is it? Well, that's and now why I'm, they're doing so well. It's door-to-door I, service, it's, and, I, and it's affordable. Yes, I mean, love it, it makes perfect sense. It is affordable now. But I, those of you who follow the news, you know they do not make money. They lose billions of dollars a year. There will be a day of reckoning eventually. Yeah, I um, wonder about that. I, I'm I, uh, and, about the you know the price hikes and what that will. What that will do? I mean, obviously, just simple laws of supply, demand, and, and price points is going to mean that if they if they're raising the prices, um, they're going to lose some of their consumers. Do those consumers then just go back to taxi cabs and public transportation? I guess they do if they don't own their own car. How much of that happens is anybody's guess. Right. Uh, apparently, you won't be here uh, to care about that. <laughs> at least, never say that. I am always going to be in Southern Nevada, and I will always care because that this is my thing. Okay. What else? Uh, is there anything mm. else that you wish well, you would have done you, differently? Or um, One of the things that I, as I leave, I will, and, and we have started to be a voice in it, and, and again, I, I think I probably should have jumped in a little bit sooner, is um, is talking about the electrification and uh, of, of fleets and cars and moving towards a sustainable fuel fuel source. Now we we are almost 100% CNG and so that is very good. What is that? So uh, compressed compressed natural gas. So that's very low emissions. But you know so California has got this mandate that you know they are going to very quickly be moving towards a towards electric vehicles. And uh, you know right now only about 1% of the or I think it's 1.7% of all cars in the United States the, the our entire fleet is electric. Yeah. But um we anticipate that about 25% of Calif- the, the California fleet will be electric by the year. I think it's 2030. Okay. That seems pretty quick. Yeah. So but so that's a big deal to us in Nevada, right? Because what we've got over 20% of all visitors who come to Las Vegas have traveled via I-15 in a vehicle to get here. So we really need to be starting to talk about how we're going to have electric vehicle charging infrastructure along that corridor. Otherwise, we've just precluded 25% of those vehicles from making that trip. That's a big deal. Now, I get that they'll become more efficient. I get the ba- the batteries will be able to hold more charge. But we, we still need have to be, be able wise. to charge them. We need to be wise in making sure people yeah. don't have, uh, what do they call it, range anxiety? Oh, um, yeah. And that they feel, sti- you know, that they feel comfortable that they can. If that they can make it to the next mm-hmm. station. So that's one that worries me a little bit. Tita, do you know this might be a curveball? And if you do, sure. it's fine. Yeah. If you don't know, it's fine. Um, do, do we know percentage-wise the carbon emissions in the valley mm. from different types of transportation? Do we have mm-hmm. any idea who's to blame for most of the emissions <laughs> and well, and where we maybe we think there's a lot of emissions, but there really might not be? Do, do we know? Well, I can tell you that I was mortified to learn just recently. We held a very large uh, um, clean energy and transportation summit recently. And as I was preparing and our staff was doing research, I did learn that formerly the generation of electricity was the largest greenhouse gas emitter. And that that's 
now tipped over to transportation. So generation okay. of of green um, of uh, of electricity has moved towards more um, sustainable sources, and and now it's transportation that's the number one. But Th- that's we, at a national level. Did I read something? Maybe it was Jackie Valley's story. Jackie, Jackie, forgive Valley. me if I am getting this wrong, but she. Wrote a story about the RTC not that long ago, and there was some mention of trying to match up rideshare companies with public transportation yeah. and, and doing handoffs. To, mm-hmm. What was that? Remind me. So they call it first mile, last mile. So the, it, this is a great example of a public-private partnership. So we have got some warehouses way up in the Northwest that have that have employees who are you know earning $10, $15 an hour. And so that type of employee doesn't necessarily have access to a vehicle. And yet our closest bus stop was uh, was two miles away from from those in, those from, empo- from those employment centers. So okay. we had employees who were walking. And we are so fortunate that um, we're able to pull together a partnership. So first, the, the industrial warehouse complex asked us if we would extend public transit out there. And we said, well, yes, if you can contribute $360,000 to yeah. our budget, then yes, we can. Of course, that that's just not, not attainable. So sure. um, we lift came to a, an agreement along with the the employers, Fanatics and Amazon, with Fanatics, I think we're working with Amazon as well, wherein Lyft offers reduced fares. The RTC contributes $1 to each ride, and the Fanatics pays the remainder. And so now we're able to, we call it first mile, last mile, and um, employees can take, uh, summon an Uber or Lyft, or uh, I'm sorry, just a Lyft right now. It's just our partnership with Lyft. Okay. And they have a free ride to the closest um transit station wow. bus station and we have there are 13 different stations free to the that, user free to the user so free to the employee got it yeah uh, is that only happening in that one little pocket mm-hmm. in the northwest right it, now it is and um we, it, we're hoping that it will we can expand it and it, but it is incumbent upon the employer to want to be a partner so let's maybe end on what probably is maybe the biggest problem going forward, which is, are you worried at all that the RTC is just going to crumble before it <laughs> figures out no, um, how to be what it needs to be to be financially sustainable? Sure. Thank you for that question. And I would say I am not worried about it. It is truly something we have to talk about. But our community seems to understand the value of transit and the fact that it does need a sustainable funding source. And I, I share that with you because I, I, my, my confidence comes from this advisory committee that we meet with regularly to talk about these things. And it's a it's 32 um, business um, people. It's a, it's a private sector people, chambers, labor, businesses. And they are interested and they're trying to figure – they're trying to help us figure out how we keep it sustainable. Um, so – and the fact that we're on top of it. And we're going to figure this out, whether it's partnerships with private sector, whether it's finding another funding source. I am I am confident that we will figure it out, um, but it's going to take some work. Uh, but actually, uh, at my board meeting this morning, Mayor Goodman brought it up that we need to also really be thinking smarter about land use planning and where trans- existing transportation is present. Because we need to work on density. We need to work on infill before we sprawl out and put people in a place where they need public transportation, and yet it's not out there. Let's go ahead and densify and fill in 
and take advantage of where we already have transit. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We look Thanks. forward to hearing uh, which New train project uh, <laughs> you'll be involved in in uh, the near future. Thanks for your time and uh, enjoy your last uh, few weeks. I will. I got to tell you, a shout out to my team. I work with some of the most amazing people. I know that sounds cliche, but the favorite, favorite, favorite part of this career has been this team that I'm surrounded by. They rock. They, they get stuff. Okay, RTC people. She loves you. I do. <laughs> Thanks, Tina. All right, bye. Hi, Megan Masterly. Welcome to the KUNB studio for Indie Matters. Thank you. Happy to be here. So tell me about this story that you just filed. Yes. So essentially, there was this uh, report that was released by the State Division of Child and Family Services. So it was mandated by a bill passed in the last legislative session, AB 298. Essentially, it it requires the state to report the number of youth that they sent out of state for treatment. So these are kids that are either in the juvenile justice system or the child welfare system. And the report specifically looks at kids who are sent out of state for more than 15 days. That's what the bill sets. We're looking at kids who are sent, you know, for, for a longer term kind of residential treatment in an out-of-state facility. And what kind of treatment are we talking about? So this is largely um, behavioral health issues for for kids. Um, Some of the facilities do crossover treatment for folks with um, behavioral health and developmental disability issues. Sometimes it's substance abuse issues. It just depends um, on the case and the, the type of treatment that the child needs. Okay, so what were the numbers, first of all? So in total, this was looking at fiscal year 2019, and the report found that the state sent um, 170 kids out of state. So the top state was Utah, uh, neighboring Utah, which kind of makes some sense, where 136 kids were sent. Uh, The next uh, state that received the most kids was Texas, where 10 kids were sent, followed by Colorado with six kids, um, Missouri with five kids. So those were the top states. But the furthest away states were Georgia, where three kids were sent, Michigan, where two kids were sent, and Indiana where another two kids were sent. So let's start with the ones that seem like anomalies first. What what was going on with, with shipping kids to Michigan and Georgia? Yeah, so I, I, this is a question I talked to the, the state officials about is, you know, how, how do you determine where to send these kids, right? Like sending kids to Georgia and Michigan, that just seems uh, really far away. And they told me it's a couple of things. One, it has to do with the type of treatment that the facility can provide. Um, for instance, they told me those kids that were sent to Texas, um, most of them were sent to this um, Texas neuro rehab facility that focuses on, it can do uh, both behavioral health and developmental disability treatment. And that's a treatment state officials say they can't offer in Nevada. So oftentimes it's a facility offers a specific kind of treatment, um, which is why they're being sent out. Other times they told me it's an issue of timing. You know, if, if a kid just can't get into a bed in Nevada, can't get into a bed in a closer state, they might end up in another state. So it's an issue of, of timing as well as the what the facility offers and, and what the child needs. Okay, so presumably everyone involved in managing the situation would want these kids to be treated in state if possible. Is, is that yes, correct? that's correct. 
Okay. And, but we don't have the facilities or the facilities at the right time. Right. So that's, that's the big issue is it's a couple of things. It's, um, it's space of facilities. It's, it's the timing of getting folks in if there's um, a wait list at all. And then three, it's the special specialized services. And, and that's one of the things the state is starting to look at now is, you know, are, are there, is there a critical mass of kids that we're sending to another state, you know, to warrant opening up a facility here? And then, you know, how do you open that facility? Is it, um, is it a state facility? Is it a private facility? And there's actually uh, one of the state officials I talked with who um, heads the residential services for Division of Child and Family Services um, told me that sh- there's a working group sort of, of of state folks and the private folks who are offering these behavioral health services um, for children to figure out, okay, where, where are the gaps and is there a space for a new type of facility to come in? And then who would that provider be? Okay. And what else did the report find that we need to know about? Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things to mention is this is uh, looking at both juvenile justice and child welfare cases, like I mentioned, but it's by and large the juvenile justice cases that made up a higher share of the kids sent out of state. So 127 cases or 75% of the cases were juvenile justice cases. And I asked the state, you know, why is that? And they told me um, a couple of reasons, but the main one seems to be because often it's these juvenile justice cases that have like the hardest behavioral health issues issues most severe. Um, they've, you know, tried all the in-state facilities that they can. They might have gotten kicked out of them. Um, so they're the ones that may have, you know, tried all their options in Nevada. And, and that could be one of the reasons why they're get, getting sent out of state at sort of um, a higher share of the, the total population. Okay. And I'm assuming that social services dollars in the Nevada state budget is covering the cost of sending these kids to these facilities out of state or no? Right. So that's a really interesting thing. So yes. So uh, most of these kids um, talked about in the report are paid for through Medicaid. So state Medicaid dollars. Um, The state told me that they're for Medicaid ineligible children, they're um, additional federal dollars that they receive that come through the state general fund that they can use to fund those children. But this report was just looking at um, kids that the state is paying for. So this doesn't include um, private insurance, you know, parents that are paying for things themselves. These are these are specifically kids that the state um, is paying for. But the interesting thing is this report purely just looked at the numbers of kids sent out of state. It does not address the cost of sending them out of state. And my understanding from talking to DCSF is that Medicaid will actually individually contract with each of these providers and set an established rate. So in Nevada, Medicaid sets these, you know, this this scale of rates. You know, if you're this type of facility, you get this much per day. If you're this facility, you get this much per day. Um, th- that's not how it works with the out-of-state facilities. They were telling me that there's going to be an individual contract between Medicaid and that facility and say, you know, we're going to provide X treatment type and this is how much, you know, our uh, per rate day is going to be. Um, but that was not looked at in the report. And that was one of the things that when I talked to some folks who are working in the child mental health space, you know, they were saying we would love to see the dollars that are being spent on this to figure out, okay, how much are we actually spending on sending these kids out of state? We know that we're sending them out of state, um, but how much is it costing the state to do so? And how does that compare to what the state is spending, you know, to treat kids in state? So that's for further further questions. Yeah, that makes sense. Stories like these always raise more questions than they answer. Uh, I've I found. What else did you learn, or is, is that pretty much the gist? Yeah. I, I think it, the other thing that I would mention in terms of talking with some of these, um, you know, child mental health experts, you know, they were saying it's, it's great that we have the numbers. Obviously, the number is a starting point. That's something that, you know, you hear about these cases anecdotally, but to have a number and know, okay, it's 170 kids, that's the number we're working with, you know, that's a step in the right direction. But the thing they were telling me is that's really all we have looking at this report. And there's so many more questions that we have, like you were saying. And so one of those is, okay, well, 
what are the outcomes? We're sending these kids out of state. How are they faring in these treatments? Are they, you know, bouncing around from from Texas to Missouri to, you know, trying to exhaust all the options? Is it successful? And then they're able to come back in the state, get these sort of wraparound services, which is the ideal, you know, you come back to the home, you have these wraparound services, you can stay in the home, stay in the community. Uh, You know, that's the ideal, but we really have no sense of whether this treatment is working. And one of the um, experts that I talked to, Dr. Lisa Durrett, she was telling me, she's a child psychiatrist, and she was telling me that, you know, most of the evidence-based practices and, you know, the, the standards that are out there for care say that keeping kids in the community is generally going to be the best treatment for them. You want to keep them here. You want to provide them home-based treatment if you can. Um, and that in these cases, generally residential treatment is not the recommended option. So a lot of her questions were centered around, um, you know, is this effective? You know, the, the, the practices seem to suggest that no, it, it wouldn't be, but it would help to know, okay, what what does it actually look like for these individual kids that were setting out of state? Yeah. Well, you said earlier in our conversation that in many cases, if we're sending kids out of state, it's because we've exhausted our other options. In other words, efforts have been made. Mm-hmm. They haven't worked, especially in these juvenile justice cases. I guess I'm curious, do each of these kids in the juvenile justice system, do they have a case worker who does sort of track them? And is it just the case that that information isn't getting loaded into any kind of information database that everyone can look at? Right. So that, that was a question that I asked them as well. So these cases are either handled, there's the, the juvenile justice system or the child welfare system. They're separate systems, but there are, yeah, there's folks involved. So like in the case of juvenile justice, there's, you know, a judge that's involved in the case. There's, yeah, there are case workers. There are people who are involved in this and, and you know, they're the ones that are involved in determining where to send the child. It might be, you know, that the county agency that's a child welfare agency agency that's choosing where to send the child. So folks are involved. Um, But yeah, the problem is that there's no central repository for all this information. I was, you know, asking uh, DCFS about this. I said, you know, is there is there a working group that's looking at these kids? You know, you know, I'm sure there's some HIPAA protected information in there. You know, to to protect these children, you can't disclose all that to the public necessarily. But is there is there a working group looking at these 170 kids being able to say? you know, these kids went here and this was successful, this wasn't successful, but he told me that there's no working group currently that exists like that. Okay. Well, perhaps as a result of this conversation uh, or the story that we'll publish, when are we taking it live? Friday. Tomorrow. Uh, Well, actually, it'll be tomorrow for those of you who are listening to this now. Yes. So just disregard that part of the conversation. It'll be out. It's published. It's on the website. It's there. Go now. now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Megan, thanks so much. Always appreciate uh, your reporting and your succinct explanations of such. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And while this is the official outro, make sure to stick around for one more thing after the credits here. If you like the show and want to send us feedback, good, bad, or neutral, you can email me, joey, at thenvindie.com. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, make sure to email the editors at editors at thenvindie.com. You can find the stories we talked about today and a lot more on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Make sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, from Apple to Spotify and more. And if you don't see us on your preferred platform, let us know and we'll get it on there. If you want to support our dive into the oceans of nonprofit journalism, you can find the support our work button on our website. Our theme song is by People With Bodies, who you can follow on Spotify for more awesome music. I want to thank Tina Quigley for being on this week's episode, as well as Elizabeth and Megan. I'd also like to thank Jackie Valley, and you'll hear why in just a moment. I'm Joey Lovato, your host and editor of this very podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.
Okay, welcome to the podcast, Jackie. Thank you for letting me be here. Jackie has agreed to come in and sit in as a proxy for our fearless editor, John Ralston, on a topic that has been argued about many, many times behind the indie scenes, and I lost this battle, so I'm going to take this opportunity while John is 30,000 feet up in a plane and will not be on the ground for many more hours um, to see if I can at least persuade you and maybe some of our listeners uh, on this topic, which is the Oxford comma. Uh, You have some copy, copy editing experience, I think, Jackie, so can you explain to our listeners just what is the Oxford comma? Well, I think most people probably don't even realize it's called the Oxford comma because you learn in first or second grade that if you're writing a sentence with a list of things at the end, you do, you know, cars, comma, trains, comma, comma, and automobiles. And that extra comma before the and is technically the Oxford comma. So I wouldn't say it probably was not until college that I actually learned it had an official title. So it's also called a series comma, and that's an acceptable term, but I think you're right. Most people don't know what the heck you're talking about and probably just think that everyone who even knows the term is some kind of a word geek, which I suppose is true. So what is your view, though, in general on the usage of this type of comma, particularly in that last placement, which is always where the controversy comes in, whether do you need that final comma before the last thing in the series or don't you? Okay, so here's where I stand on it. You know, I grew up always putting in that third comma before and. And then I majored in journalism in college, and that's where things changed. And so, you know, the AP style book says that in general, you probably don't need the Oxford comma. And I think it harkens back to the idea of... uh, efficiency. I'm all about efficiency. I wouldn't say I'm as hardcore about it as our editor, John Ralston, (laughs) but I am pretty anti-Oxford comma. And I think it's because the commas imply the word and. And so I think putting it in front of that and is just unnecessary. Now, there's an exception, and that's if um, it needs clarity. So say you're saying you have a list and it's like eggs and bacon and toast and butter. You kind of need the comma to separate the two conjoined Yes, that's a great way to put it. So if it's a complex subject um, or object, then yes, the commas are very helpful because you're trying to group things together. To me, that's one of the more obvious uh, uses that can be easily argued for. Where I differ with you and John and others is that I don't think the word and necessarily always helps the reader pause quite as much as they might need to in order to comprehend what follows. And this actually happens to me sometimes when I'm reading, when there is a long, complex sentence and there's no final comma, you know, I'll find myself having read almost to the end and then I get a little confused and I go back and so I'm sort of rereading, trying to figure out, okay, where should I have paused to make sure I understand the full meaning here. And so I, I would argue, um, even for those who are not religious, like I am, I, to me, I would almost always put that final comment in there as a service to the reader, because not all r- readers are used to writing extremely heavy and complex texts. So to me, I feel like we're giving them an assist mm-hmm. um, on, on that. But go ahead. I can see that. And I think it's maybe... In this day and age, uh, more kosher to include the Oxford comma because back in the newspaper age, even that small comma, you were deleting a space that was, you know, you could run stories longer. So it was more, in some ways, a 
space-saving mechanism. Yeah, you mentioned the efficiency, and certainly at the Indie, with an online publication, we can have as many characters and words and letters and spaces as we wish. There is no end uh, if we don't choose there to be um, to any given story. So I don't think for us it's an efficiency um, question, uh, but our editor has come down strong on this. Um, It's one of the very few editorial things John and I have ever really disagreed about. He does let them stand. I want to say this, and he would say this if he was here. He lets them stand and for the columnist, if a columnist includes an Oxford comma in his or her column, it's allowed to stand. He's giving them that latitude. But when it comes to indie stories, he edits them out. And if I fail to edit them out, I always hear about it later. And he'll often accuse me of trying to just leave them there and or sneak them in when he's, when he's not looking. Read our copy a little closer and see what we missed. <laughs> uh, yeah, we like that. Send us emails and comments uh, about our copy always. And if you agree with me on the Oxford comma, please email John Ralston at ralston at theenvyindy.com uh, and tell him how wrong he is. Thanks for listening and see you next week.